Let's read God's precious word together from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one who enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thanks, Amber, for that. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. My name is Paul. It's my pleasure to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Um, let you know that over the years um, I've had been part of uh, lots of evangelistic events. I mean, just last weekend was an example. Uh, our time at Brewarrina was really well there to have great friendship with the people out there, but also we had a hope of telling people about Jesus, a uh, hope that they might reflect on who He is and respond to Him um, the right way. You know, a common practice in um, mission times is to do a street survey you know with the aim of trying to get a, a taste for what the popular opinion is about Jesus and so you'd wander up to someone on the street and you might ask a simple question who do you think Jesus is well over the years let me tell you I've heard pretty much all the answers sometimes they can be quite positive he was a great teacher a good man a miracle worker the son of God but they could also be quite negative. He's just a fairy tale. Um, he was someone who caused division. I don't care about Jesus because he's dead. Often the response could be just neutral or agnostic. You know, I really don't know anything about him. Now, in my uh, university days in the 90s, there was a song on high rotation on the alternative radio charts. I mean, I was a uni student after all. Um, but it was surprising to hear this song on a government radio station. It was called, Jesus is Way Cool. And you might be what, what's that song about? I'll read you some of the lyrics about how their take on Jesus was. It went like this. Everybody liked Jesus. Everybody wanted to hang out with him. He walked on the water. He swam on the land. He could tell you these stories and people would want to listen to him. He was really cool. If you were blind or lame, you just went to Jesus and he would put his hands on you and you would be healed. That's so cool. Anything he wanted to do, he did. He turned water to wine. And if he wanted to, he could have turned wheat into marijuana, sugar into cocaine, vitamin pills into amphetamines. Well... Okay, it probably tells you about what type of band they were rather than their theological insight. It was a little bit dodgy. 
sort of positive but quite confused. But this sort of reflects a very common attitude when it comes to Jesus, does it not? I mean, we want to often define Jesus the way we want to, in a way that's, well, convenient to us. We were just days away from Christmas when even the most ardent non-believer might sing the name of Jesus as they sing carols. Millions at some point will look upon the nativity scene but they won't understand the momentous event that it was. Rather than being in awe of God coming to dwell with us, most will just think of Jesus as nothing more than a baby, yes? A baby lying in a manger. Cute, confined, harmless. Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to look a little bit more carefully at the Christmas story. and In particular, we're going to reflect upon the ways that Jesus is described in the opening chapters of the Gospel. We just sang this morning... Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is indeed great joy that you have come to be with us. So Lord, please help us to receive you correctly. Help us to receive you as our king, humbly submitting before you humbly accepting your rule of our lives. And so, Lord, as you speak to us now through your word, please give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've already mentioned the nativity scene. And what does every good nativity scene need? Well, it needs a few shepherds, does it not? It needs, needs a few shepherds and a few sheep. Well, why were they there? Why were the shepherds there? Well, because an angel of the Lord told them about the baby Jesus. But listen to how the angel describes this baby from Luke 2. I've got some readings here on screen for you. From Luke 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And here's the important part. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now here's where we need to broaden our understanding, broaden our picture of the baby in the nativity scene. This baby is royalty. Do you see how he's described there in verse 11? A saviour has been born. He is the Messiah, the king. And that's the term that we're going to try to unpack today. This baby in the manger who is king. Now how would a Jew, this shepherd standing in the field, how would they understand the birth of Jesus how do they understand the promise of a Messiah? Well, like any good Jew, they would turn to their scriptures and in their scriptures they would read about the promise to David, the king of Israel, 
about how God was going to establish a kingdom. I've got the promise here on the screen for you from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will rise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father and he will be my son. Now in the days of David, if you're familiar with the story, the the whole kingdom does get established and it's looking good under his rule and the early days of the rule of his son, Solomon. But very quickly, as you get a chance to read through the Old Testament, you'll see that things go bad very quickly. Within a generation, the kingdom is divided and each each subsequent king seems to become worse and worse, more and more evil. It becomes this sort of downward spiral. And by the time of Jesus' birth, the Jewish Messiah was no more than a figurehead, no more than really a puppet under the control of Roman rule. So what has become of this great promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7? This promise to establish a throne of his kingdom forever. And that's not the only one. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll see even greater promises about the kingdom, and that's why we read Psalm 2, where it reaches a high point. That was a psalm that would have been sung at the coronation of each Jewish king, each Jewish messiah. They would have sung the psalm, Psalm 2. And the description of the messiah here introduces something even greater, a king who is owner and judge of all things universally. Have a look at verse 6 and following here on the screen. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And this is really ramping up the intensity, isn't it? I mean, it's blurring the identity between the Son and God. I mean, just look at the inheritance that's involved there in verse 8. That's a pretty impressive ask. The ends of the earth, all peoples, not just some, not just the Jewish people, all peoples of the earth. That's quite a big ask to ask for your parents, did you think? And then get it. The ends of the earth. pretty good if you might get maybe a little bit of real estate in the inheritance but to get 149 million square kilometers that's a fair bit that's the area of the earth and that's before adding ownership of every single person on the planet millions and millions billions in today's terms In just that short verse, the promise is quite breathtaking when you unpack it, is it not? And think about the original context of this song in Israel. As they sang this song at the coronation of the king, they knew that it was going way beyond the promises that had come before. There's a promise of the king being like God 
in every way. A kingdom that would last for eternity. A kingdom that would extend to the ends of the earth. Can you imagine singing that song on the day of a coronation? And you know what coronations are like. You would get visiting dignitaries, wouldn't you? Other kings and princes and princesses gathering to this formal event. And then you sing a song saying, we're going to rule over all of you. It's a little bit intense. But these are not the words of a stupidly boastful human king. David might sing the song, but, and he might know that he fits it, well, just a little bit, but he knows they're looking to head. The promise is looking to head to a real king, the real king of this psalm. Looking forward to the day, as it says there in verse 7, the day called today. And so we turn to the New Testament. This is a favourite psalm of the New Testament writers. They quote it over and over and over again. We're going to look at a situation where the Apostle Paul was speaking to some Jews and explaining that Jesus was the king that they're looking for. Have a look here, Acts 13, verse 32 on the screen. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children. How? By raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. There is a real individual that fulfills this psalm. It's not just a propaganda statement, an overstatement on a, on a coronation day. Paul is saying that that coronation day was the day that Jesus rose from the dead and was seen by many witnesses and his followers. It's not that he began being the son on that day, but that was the day where the world saw Jesus crowned, anointed as the Messiah, the King. And so as we come back to Psalm 2, we can personalise the psalm. We can personalise it. With that information, we can make it seem more real. Jesus was the one who is being spoken about here. Jesus is the one who owns the whole world. We can also personalise the opening verses of that psalm. Let's look at them again to remind us. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break, our, break their chains and throw off their shackles. Let's personalise it. Jesus is the one the nations are conspiring against. Their call is to break free from the constraints of Jesus, to break free from obedience to him. And if we're brave enough, friends, we'll admit we're like that sometimes too, are we not? We prefer to do things our own way, to break free of obedience to Jesus, to savour our sin, to feed our pride, to let our hearts wander from Jesus. It's just so easy to reject him, to break free of Jesus. 
And when we think of ourselves like that, we come to verse 9, the most, probably the most frightening verse in the psalm, here on the screen. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's a disturbing image. That is disturbing. A rod of iron. A weapon. Do you realise that verse refers to Jesus? We instinctively want to soften the image. We want to say, oh, it's like a ceremonial rod. No. It's a brute weapon. A crowbar. Smashing pottery. Destroying traitors that rebel against him. And so we need a pretty, a fairly radical shift, do we not? I mean, to make the right sort of picture of Jesus in our hearts, to understand him properly as Messiah. It's not fun to say this sort of stuff, but it's real. If we stand opposed to the rightful king, then he becomes our destroyer. And we can understand the offence of these verses, especially if we're one of the people identifying with those first three verses. Offensive because the authority of Jesus stands over the whole world, over every culture. But most offensive of all, it stands over my basic culture, the culture of me, what I want to do. It says, I want to be free of God. I want to be God, not Jesus. So it begs a very blunt question, friends. Where do you stand with Jesus? It's a shattering blow, is it not? I mean, a shattering blow of our fluffy, soft view of Jesus. The baby Jesus. So cute, so small, so powerless, so harmless. So easy to ignore. And so we come to the closing three verses of this psalm. It begins with a therefore. This is where the whole thing is going. It's inescapable logic. And so it asks, the whole verse opens with this question, why are the nations conspiring? Have they no sense at all? How can you stand opposed to the universal king? The psalm now concludes with a persuasion. It's saying, persuading us to bow the knee, to act rightly before the king. There is something you can do, you can respond rightly. And so we're given the warning from verse 10. Verse 10 on screen. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he'll be angry with your way and it will lead to destruction or his wrath can flare up in a moment. Verse 11 outlines it there. The only sensible thing to do is to serve the Lord with reverent fear, respectful of his authority, understanding that he is God and we're not his God. We need to make up with the king. As we see that picture there, kiss the sun. It's not a romantic action it's an action of friendship, a gesture of friendship wanting to seek reconciliation with the king, not to be his rebel 
But best of all, this psalm doesn't finish with a taunting or people being failed rebels. The psalm ends with the most amazing promise you could imagine. The very last line here on screen. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is a place, friends. There is a place to hide from the coming judgment. Interestingly, the only place to hide from the sun is to hide in the sun. That's the only place. That's the only place you can take refuge from Jesus and you'll find it. You'll find blessing. Isn't it an amazing switch of metaphors as we read through this psalm? It began with the kings, the rulers, muttering, conspiring together. By the end we see they need to turn from being leaders to becoming refugees. They need to take refuge in Jesus. Friends, that's what I've done. That's what every believing Christian has done, taking reference to refuge in Jesus. And to put it bluntly, it is our aim to persuade anyone who hasn't done that yet to take refuge in Jesus. That's why we went out to those friendship visits out to Brewarrina. That's why we do mission. It is the inescapable logic of this psalm, the inescapable reality of Jesus being the Messiah. We must all bow the knee to him. Now, isn't it such a strange thing to say in today's world, in today's culture, to say that I've actually turned my back on freedom to serve, to speak happily in terms of service with fear, to say that I'm in awe of Jesus but in the middle of all that I can rejoice and actually celebrate his rule because I've taken refuge in him. I need to admit that I'm part of the rebellion. I'm one of those conspirators and so are you. I need to change my view of Jesus as someone who I cannot ignore to see him as he really is, the mighty ruler of the universe. You might be offended by this psalm. You might be offended by this inescapable logic. But in closing, can I encourage you with a wonderful truth? Jesus is the only king who is perfectly loving, who is perfectly right, who is perfectly strong. He loves and cares for all people. He is the Messiah, the King who began his life with us in a stable, who wears a crown, but a crown of thorns on the cross so that we might be able to take refuge in him. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we do indeed rejoice at the coming of the King. In your great mercy, you 
take the punishment that we deserve so that we might be able to serve you in perfect freedom. We thank you for the way in which you can change our hearts and bring us closer to you and be the people that we're meant to be, your servants, rejoicing under your rule. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.